Well, good morning. It's great to be with you again. Thanks for Sarah. Thanks to Sarah. That was an excellent children's homily. Um, I think you've said a lot of things that I was going to say, so uh, we'll see see how this goes. We, uh, of course, are making our way through the book of Daniel, and we're calling this series a Faithful Living in a Beastly Age. Uh, you might say that the first two weeks of this series were focused on faithful living. Uh, this week, we're going to make a turn and talk, uh, as it were, about the beasts. And chapter two uh, opens with a bad dream. In fact, a series of bad dreams. I'm wondering if you've ever woken up in the middle of the night with a racing pulse and cold sweat, and you know you've seen something terrifying, but the more you try to remember what it was, the easier you forget. And something similar happened to Nebuchadnezzar, and it was happening night after night. Here was the king of Babylon, the most powerful person on earth, but he was terrified by these dreams he was having. So he uh, assembled in his court, his imperial court, all the wise men, the soothsayers, the astrologers, and he asked them, can you please tell me what it is I've been seeing and what in the world it means? And they say, well, if you tell us what you've been seeing, we might be able to interpret it for you. But no one knows what you've been seeing in your sleep except you. And he says to them in reply, look, if you're able to recount my dream and interpret it, I will give you whatever you want. Pretty good offer. He also says, if you're not able to do this, I am going, these were his actual words, tear you to pieces and turn your households into piles of rubble. Stakes are pretty high. Well, Daniel, who Peter introduced so well these last two weeks, this Jewish man, this exile on the margins of this great empire, hears about the night terrors of Nebuchadnezzar. He gathers his friends together and pray, asking God to reveal what this dream was and what it means. And God did. Earlier in the chapter that you did not hear, Daniel receives, uh, uh, receives from God a vision that allows him to recount the dream and interpret it. That's the heart of our reading, the dream and its interpretation. Now, I want to work through this text this morning under two main headings. I want to talk about uh, a statue that shines and a rock that destroys. A statue that shines, a rock that destroys. First, a statue that shines. Uh, the dream itself is pretty straightforward. In my mind's eye, I picture one of the uh, Oscars handed out the Academy Awards, just supersized and made of four different metals, gold, silver, bronze, and iron. What this picture represents in a word is a foretelling of world history. Daniel is predicting that four global empires will arise and fall in rapid succession and provoke awe and wonder and fear throughout the world. Daniel describes the statue as dazzling, enormous, awesome in appearance. At the heart of this vision is a relationship between ruler, king, empire, and the claim to worship. Now, what does this vision have to say to us today? Well, at least three things. The first thing it says is something about the scope of God's sovereignty. Let's zoom out from this particular passage and do a brief retelling of the Old Testament, okay? Ambitious goal. The, uh, the uh, Old Testament starts in Genesis 1 with truly global concerns. The first 
human beings, Adam and Eve. And it stays wide, the first few chapters of Genesis. Cain and Abel, Noah and the flood, the table of nations and the tower of Babel. But then starting in Genesis 12, the focus narrows quite dramatically. God is concerned with one people, one place. Noah, excuse me, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, the tabernacle, the temple, David, Solomon. It's one nation amongst a sea of others. Well, here in Daniel 2, we're reminded that God indeed has the whole world in his hands. That God is as intimately engaged in the affairs of the nations as he is in the affairs of the church or the people of God. We're reminded that nothing can surprise God. Nothing is outside the scope of his influence. All the crazy things happening around the world today, the protests in Belarus, the public health crisis in Peru, our upcoming presidential election, God is involved in the affairs of the nations. Daniel puts it like this earlier in chapter two. You, Lord, change the times and seasons. You set up kings, you tear them down. You know what's hidden in darkness and light dwells with you. God is sovereign, first thing. Second thing, our sovereign God delegates and gives real authority to the governing bodies on the earth. That's the point of Daniel's interpretation of the first aspect of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Daniel's saying, Nebuchadnezzar, it was not your military genius or your political savvy uh, that allowed you to take the throne. You are there because God put you there. God has placed in your hand all humankind, all creation. God has given you the power that you now exercise and enjoy. What's striking about Uh, Daniel's words uh, to Nebuchadnezzar specifically is that Nebuchadnezzar was not a nice person. He wasn't a benevolent ruler. He wasn't out for his people's good. He was, uh, uh, we might say, a dictator, a tyrant. He uh, destroyed the temple of God. Nebuchadnezzar enslaved the people of God. Nevertheless, Daniel says to him, Nebuchadnezzar, you are that head of gold. You have been given dominion and and glory or or weight. Uh, Paul in the New Testament says a similar thing in the book of Romans chapter 13. He says essentially all human authorities, all beings are uh, bodies on our earth that exercise power. They're there because God in some way placed them there. God is sovereign. God delegates power. But the final thing this first half of the vision teaches us is that human power has a fatal flaw. Its feet are brittle and they will crumble. Every human kingdom, every earthly empire, every city of man has a tendency, an inevitable tendency, to overstep its bounds and demand a form of allegiance due to God alone. Empires are totalizing. They never stay in their God-ordained place. 
They, um, they reach out and try to unify the world under an order other than God. They are, uh, as Leslie Newbigin put it, a, a false gospel. They try to unite the world under different terms. And this is as valid a biblical truth as what I just said about power being established by God. I already mentioned the Tower of Babel, this attempt to unite humankind. There is, uh, and also in the Old Testament, this very dire warning that God gives to the nation of Israel about their desire to establish a monarchy. He says, don't you know what kings do? They send the sons of men and women to war, to die. Jesus Christ himself was put to death by the state to maintain law and order. In the book of Revelation, we see this uh, ghastly image of a beast that comes out of the sea and a beast that comes out of the earth that unites the world in, uh, against God. There is a strong biblical critique against concentrations of human power because they're totalizing again. They demand from their people a form of allegiance due to God and to God alone. Whatever the ideology is, the basic impulse is the same. And so as, you know, as Christians, as we think about what the book of Daniel has to say to us about politics, about power, I think we can say that there is a legitimacy to human government, but it has a, a limited place in the economy of God, and that we can say this far and no further. Now, I'm wondering you how I'm wondering how many of you are thinking right now, like, okay, Nick, that's cool. Can you just tell me what the statue represents? Like, who are these different empires that are represented by silver and bronze and iron? Uh, I think that's not an inappropriate question. There was definitely an original application of this prophecy that Daniel's initial readers would have been very keen to understand. Um, but what I really want to say is that the statue is, is portrayed and it's ambiguous enough that it can apply to many different nations and empires across many different eras. And if you read how people have interpreted this passage throughout the history of the church, you'll see them apply, apply it to the empires of their day. And I think that's, that's okay. Although the different kingdoms in the vision, the different elements of the statue are different, what's important is that they are partake of the same structure, the same body. It's, it's the power of empire. It glitters, it shines like the sun, but it's all vanity of vanity. And God, to quote the folk song, is gonna cut it down. Statues that shine, rock that destroys. Let's go back to the dream, okay? So again, Nebuchadnezzar, he's seen this statue, gold, silver, bronze. And then suddenly and surprisingly, this object falls from the sky. It's a little rock. Maybe not that different than David slaying Goliath. This little rock brings down the entire statue. It's crushed by its own weight, and the wind sweeps it away like wheat on a threshing room floor. World history, human governments, all what I just said in that first point. It turns out that in, this entire thing is always open to the possibility of God acting upon it. And when that takes place, 
when God, his power comes in its fullness, all human authority, all human governments, all earthly powers will be destroyed. Uh, one commentator, he talks about this being a, a catastrophe. God, um, God's new kingdom happening not progressively, not gradually, not one day you just wake up and you realize it's come. No, there will be a dramatic break with history as we've known it, an inauguration of a new regime, a new order that is located on earth, but is of supernatural origin. This little rock that brings down the statue grows into this mountain that fills the earth. In the days of those kings, Daniel says, God will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And this is a a powerful promise that such a day will dawn. It's not, however, a portrayal of how it will take place. Well, fast forward with me uh, 500 years or so. Nebuchadnezzar is long gone. The Babylonian Empire is long gone. Other empires have risen and fallen in its place. And in the story I'm telling, the Roman Empire, perhaps the legs made of iron, now rules the world. And in an armpit corner of that empire, the angel Gabriel visits a young, unwed teenage girl. And he says to her, you will bear a son who will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. And she says, well, how can this be since I am a virgin? And in the language of Daniel 2, I picture the angel saying, he will be cut out from humankind, but not by human hands. And with his first recorded words, Mary's son, in some temple in some backwards corner of the empire says, the time is now. The kingdom of God has drawn near. And when he walked into rooms, sickness started to vanish. Darkness trembled. Statues fell down. Hopeless situations ceased to exist. Jesus is that rock, that tiny little pebble that has the power to bring down a statue. And his people, even now, are spread all across the earth, like that mountain filling the four corners of the globe. But there's one problem, right? As much as we can see Christ fulfilling this prophecy from Daniel 2, we have to admit that the empires of the earth have not been destroyed. They are as exacting and unjust and idolatrous as ever. We might call them by different names. They may not be as obvious as the empires of the ancient world, but globalizing, totalizing forces that unite people and values inimical to the kingdom of God are as much a feature of our world as they were back then. So what can we say? Well, I think we can say that this promise has not been fulfilled in its fullness. It's been fulfilled in part, 
But God's reign promised here and promised throughout Scripture is material, social, temporal. It's going to take place on this planet. And so I do want to say that like Daniel's original readers, we await, we long for the fullness of what's promised in this passage. The mountain of God, the temple of God, filling the earth with the knowledge and glory of God as the waters cover the sea. To receive this promise, partly in the conviction that it is true and that Jesus' resurrection is a foretaste of that coming day, but partly also in the awareness that we still pray your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I think to make a similar move as I made in my first point, there's, there's two things this, this, this section of the prophecy can teach us. And the first relates to what's fleeting versus what's permanent. The current form of this world will be destroyed. The statues of our world will be crushed. Time, as we know it, will give way to eternity. And so much of what we worry about, invest in, spend time fretting over, will be destroyed. We will not carry into the next life the overwhelming majority of the things we worry about in this life. Therefore, what kind of people should we be? How much more should we be investing in wealth that will not rot, treasure that will not uh, be corrupted? The current form of this world is passing away. First, first thing. Second thing I want to say, it's, it's related, but it, it's, it's, it's this idea of, of the grace of catastrophe. That part of what Jesus does in the world is bring things down. And we can think about that, you know, abstractly and, and kind of related to the future. But we can also think about that much more, much more personally. You know, sometimes the most loving thing God can do is take things away from us. Sometimes the most loving words God can say involve no or are not yet. I wonder if some of us are experiencing that in our lives right now. God feel, it seems like things are being stripped away from us. And if that's true of you, and to any degree, I want to encourage you by saying God says no to expand our yes to him. It's a way, and it's kind of a gloss on what Peter said last week about Daniel and that faithful no he said to the food of the empire. Sometimes God invites us to say no to things in order to expand our capacity to say yes to him. The statues that shine, rock that destroys. Let me pray for us and ask God to apply this word to our hearts. Lord, we thank you for this peculiar but ultimately very meaningful prophecy. We ask that it would root our hearts in the truth of the gospel and be encouraging and enlivening uh, for us throughout the week. I pray and I hope to speak in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.